Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. I am so excited to finally be partnering with my new favorite company, Good Clean Love. Good Clean Love is a feminine hygiene product company made with love by women for women. What is so genius about this company is that not only are their products organic and non-toxic, which we know is so important, but each and every product is scientifically advanced formulated by Johns Hopkins scientists to biomatch the vaginal pH. The reason this is so important is because the vaginal pH needs to remain low in order for our vaginas to remain healthy. There are so many factors that can disrupt our vaginal pH that can raise the pH level, making us more susceptible to infections, to vaginal dryness, to pelvic pain. Some of these factors include semen. So when we have sex, semen raises our pH. Um, When we are stressed, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When we have our period, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When our hormones are disrupted, our pH gets thrown out of balance. When our pH gets thrown out of balance, we are more susceptible to yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, to UTIs. This was a huge part of my problem. My my gut was was totally out of whack and my vaginal pH was totally out of whack. So I was getting so many vaginal infections, which was making my pelvic pain so much worse. Since I have found these products, I have not had one infection. And this is, I'm being so honest, these products have changed my life. Like I don't have fear anymore that I'm going to have sex and get an infection, that I'm going to work out and get an infection, that I'm going to do all of these normal day-to-day activities and get an infection. I have three Good Clean Love products that I use religiously. These three products are One, the Restore Moisturizing Vaginal Gel. This is a pH balance moisturizing gel that keeps your pH low, eliminates odor, relieves dryness and discomfort, and restores and promotes a healthy vaginal flora by mimicking the body's natural pH levels, salt balance, and lactic acid produced by healthy lactobacilli. I use this product religiously after I have sex and also just multiple times a week in order to make sure that my vaginal flora is healthy. The second product I use religiously are the Rebalance pH Balanced Feminine Wipes. So I put these in all of my bags and I use them after I work out. I use them after I've had a long day walking around the city and I just am sweaty and want to be careful, make sure that my vaginal flora is healthy. These wipes 
are obviously pH balanced. They are made with premium aloe and soothing botanical extracts. They are also biodegradable and they once again help promote a healthy vaginal ecosystem. Lastly, I use the BioNude Ultra Sensitive Personal Lubricant. This is an unflavored, unscented, and pH-balanced lubricant that, of course, mimics the natural feminine moisture to enhance pleasure and keep the vaginal pH low throughout sex. So this is so important because sex can disrupt the vaginal ecosystem. And for those of us who have sensitive vaginal ecosystems, this product can literally change our lives. It changed mine. So Good Clean Love offers so many products. They offer multiple different types of lubricants, oils, um, body wash. Oh my God, I forgot the body wash that I use every single day. How could I have forgot about that? It is Balanced Moisturizing Personal Wash. So that's the fourth product I use so religiously. And once again, that is gynecologist tested and recommended product that helps clean to refresh and eliminate odor while maintaining optimal vaginal pH levels. It is free of artificial fragrances, soaps, parabens, and gently cleanses, moisturizes, and balances the vagina. I want to thank Good Clean Love for creating this incredibly genius product line and for making me feel so good and so healthy that I can now share this information with all of you so that you can feel so good and so healthy. What I have to offer all the listeners is 10% off every single order, not just the first order, but every order you place on Good Clean Love's website, you will receive 10% off if you enter the code HANA10 at checkout. That's HANA10, H-A-N-N-A-H, one zero at checkout and the website is good g-o-o-d clean c-l-e-a-n love l-o-v-e dot com so please check out the website try out some products let me know what you think and i hope that they make you feel as good as they make me feel without further ado let's get into this week's episode I'm excited to be here this morning in San Diego, the day after the walk for an IC cure. It was inspiring to walk with IC patients, doctors, family members, and other supporters yesterday. As you all know, I am passionate about spreading awareness and education through my podcast, but my dream is really that one day there will be a cure for patients who are battling this difficult disease. I'm here today with Abigail Jenkins, an ICA board member and pharmaceutical executive who's been involved in the development of a drug for interstitial cystitis. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear more about what you do um, and, and what you are doing with this drug and your involvement in this drug. Um, so I'm excited to have you here and to have all of the listeners understand more about your work. Sure. Thanks for having me, Hannah. <laughs> yeah. So I have a 20-year 
career history in the development of drugs and launching different drugs. And I was really excited to join Aquinox at the time, which was the company that was developing a drug for interstitial cystitis, which is also called bladder pain syndrome, uh, because it was the first time I was working in a category where patients were really suffering with a, with actual pain, not mm-hmm. some drug, uh, not some disease that they don't even feel, but could possibly kill them, like hypertension or cardiovascular disease. This is really something that patients suffer from every single day. So. At Aquinox, we were developing a drug that was intended to reduce inflammation and thereby reduce the pain because our hypothesis was that that those two things were related. So that's how I came to learn about interstitial cystitis and be a part of this community. So interesting. And so then when did you become involved in the ICA? Uh, Shortly after I joined, I was the first, uh, one of the first employees in the U.S. The company actually was founded in Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So I was brought in to help build out our U.S. operations and our commercial operations. And coming in from a commercial is the part of the drug development process where you're taking it, you're getting ready to take it to the market. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you want to better understand the patients, better understand the disease, the healthcare providers, and any sort of advocacy groups that are operating in the space to really raise awareness for the disease. And very quickly, you know, it is it is a rather hidden disease right. in the sense that most patients suffering, it's hidden from other people. They can't see it. But it's also pretty much hidden from the market. People mm-hmm. don't aren't aware of this disease. So it was exciting to see that there was, in fact, a group that had already been working for a number of years, decades, actually, in this space. And that's how I became aware of the ICA. So interesting. And so what do you do now for the ICA? So, well, very quickly, Mm -hmm. uh, I could see that the ICA had a lot of passion, uh, but really didn't have a partner in the market, which a lot of advocacy groups benefit from having industry partners, pharmaceutical companies and other companies that are trying to also raise awareness for the disease. Uh, this, This group was doing a lot of hard work, grassroots. Um, but needed help. And so I became, I was passionate about helping patients with interstitial cystitis. Mm -hmm. And therefore I wanted to help the organization that was trying to educate and raise awareness for IC for those exact patients. Right. Um, Well, that's amazing. And it's always interesting for me to hear, hear from people who don't have the condition, but that are so interested and want to be involved, like how they got involved and what caused them to feel the connection towards the patients and the people that are suffering and as a lot of you know this weekend everyone's been talking about but they just say when you like talk to these people that no one like has believed have these problems their whole life and then you you hear them tell their stories it's like really it's yeah it's interesting absolutely (laughs) and i think i have there are you know both males and females that suffer from this condition but as a, a woman and an advocate for mm-hmm. for women's issues, I think for me, I, I definitely connected more to the to the side where they're um, often female patients are characterized as being, you know, it's just in their head and they're right. hysterical um, and really empathizing with the pain that 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 physical pain, uh-huh. um, pelvic pain. And then basically being told it's all in your head and why can't you just get over this? Yeah. Um, by that could be by doctors or family members um, or employers, whoever it is. But really, there's a lot of discounting and discrediting to mm-hmm. people who are suffering, and I definitely connected with that. Yeah. Thank you for doing all of this work because, as important as it is to have <laughs> the patient advocates and the doctors and physical, I mean, everyone's so important. But then we also need people like you who are actually involved in 
the research and creating these medications that could possibly solve the problem or part of the problem. Um, so what you're doing is really important or what you've been we're doing, doing, we're doing, yeah. Um, so do you wanna talk a little bit about the oral drug that, that you were working on creating? Sure. Uh, the drug was called Receptor. That was its generic name, and we were really excited about it. Uh, the company had actually been operating for 10 years. They had discovered this pathway, this inflammatory pathway, and believed that uh, there's a group of, of physicians, a group of researchers that believe- And this drug was solely for interstitial cystitis? It was originally developed for multiple inflammatory conditions. Oh, okay. But as we went through the clinical development process, it seemed like there was the most hope okay. uh, for interstitial cystitis because we, a number of, of researchers and, and uh, clinicians believe inflammation plays a role, and we believed that this drug had both a local and systemic potential anti-inflammatory property, so that as you took this oral medication, it was going through your digestive system, and obviously drugs are absorbed systemically, right? So you're getting kind of an anti-inflammatory systemic benefit, but then also it was going through your bladder it was you were passing it out right. of your body through the through the urine so we thought that it might have a local bladder bathing sort of effect to the drug that would have this kind of dual anti-inflammatory property and if that worked then the patient would have less pain mm. because of that mm -hmm. so we really believed it had the most hope in interstitial cystitis which is why we moved into a phase 3 trial which is the last the last phase of clinical trial development with the product just for that indication. And then after, if, if it goes past phase three, does it become FDA approved? Is that like the next? Uh, yes, you, that's, you that's take the data from your right. phase three trial or trials. Um, some, some drug categories require two phase three trials, but you take that data to the FDA and work with them to develop a, a drug package. Right. And then that's what becomes your package insert that uh -huh. you know, patients see in the medication, a uh, little box that comes with the medication, mm -hmm. um, that, that process is how you get a drug approved. So it's not just purely the phase three, you have to do a few steps after, after that with the yeah. FDA. Yeah. Is there something about interstitial cystitis that is unique or just incredibly complex that makes it a challenge to develop a drug for, you know, in comparison to other conditions? Absolutely. <laughs> From my opinion, there is. Yeah. I think the first biggest hardest part about interstitial cystitis um, is that no one knows what causes it. Right, and we were talking so, about this last night a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't really know what causes it, it's really hard to make a medication that's going to effectively treat it. The second aspect is that patients pre present and experience the disease differently. So everybody doesn't have urgency, you know, the need to go to the bathroom right away. They don't all have frequency where mm -hmm. they have, they go to the bathroom a lot. Um, most patients have pain, which is uh, why it's also called bladder pain syndrome. But some patients, as I understand, <laughs> right. like you, Hannah, yeah. don't have pain as the most prevalent symptom. Right. So not only do you not know what causes interstitial cystitis, but not everyone presents with the same symptoms. And the goal of a clinical trial is usually to reduce the symptoms of the disease. So if you've got a broad range of symptoms, you might not get the same symptom reduction through your medication. So I think that makes it that those are two elements that just right from the get go make it challenging. And then the third is, I would say the the financial potential financial opportunity. We worked on this drug. Equinox worked on making this drug for 10 years. Mm. 
We spent tens of millions of dollars trying to bring a drug to market. Um, ultimately, we failed. Um, but the market opportunity also is a, is a little bit smaller than some categories, not as much as a rare disease, but still smaller than some of the other categories. If you're investing tens of millions of dollars and you may or may not get to market and you may or may not have a big market opportunity, I think all of that leads to complexity and trying to design a drug that will be effective mm -hmm. and then why companies may or may not choose to invest more in this area because as you know there are very few companies that have really ever tried to bring a drug to market in NIC. Right. And I mean you just touched a little bit a little bit on this but it seems uh, you you cuz we did talk about this last night just when we were having a conversation but it seems like there are well, there are millions of, of women and men in the United States who have interstitial cystitis, bladder pain syndrome. Um, so you would think that there is a large incentive or there would be a large incentive for companies to attempt to develop a drug. But I guess your your answer was that it isn't that large compared to breast cancer or heart disease or diabetes is that essentially why there isn't more of an incentive for other drug companies to to work on a drug for ic yeah i think it's all of those things because mm -hmm. if you have a relatively um there are only a million di a million patients diagnosed which sounds like a lot of patients right. but compared to the population of the u.s um and and patients coming in on any given day to a doctor's office right um it's really not that <clears throat> not that many relatively well, speaking also, do you think that and the problem is that like that's only the diagnosed patients, but there are so many patients that are suffering that aren't Absolutely. diagnosed, right? But if you're looking at it from, from kind of an investment perspective, exactly. it's um, also the fact that then you've got, not only do you have a relatively small population, but not a clear understanding of the disease. So if you're gonna if you're gonna try to develop a drug, you're you're shooting in the dark. Mm. You're not sure exactly what causes the disease, which makes it extremely it's extremely hard to design a drug mm -hmm. when you know what's causing the disease. Mm -hmm. When you know physiologically in the body what is going wrong. Right. It is still very, very hard, hard yeah. <laughs> to discover something and then design a drug that can effectively target what you know is happening. Now, so this is nearly impossible. It's like, definitely yeah. a very challenging yeah. <laughs> drug development opportunity. Uh -huh. So plus then you invest all of this kind of shooting in the dark. And then hopefully it's it is if you knew what was happening and you could sort of laser beam mm -hmm. your development program, there's enough of the market. But it's kind of how much you have to invest shooting in the dark to get at that size of a market. It's all of those things put together. Do you think that. Um, because this is another another topic that I was talking about last night with some other people, but as we were, we were discussing like why students in medical school currently, their professors aren't progressively teaching about IC and that IC can be just urinary urgency, just frequency, just bladder pain. Like they're not, they're, it's, there's still not that much awareness in medical school about it. So we were saying like maybe, you know, within the next how like 10 years when professors and, and teachers in medical school kind of start to shift, there will be younger, more progressive teachers who have a better understanding potentially, I don't know, potentially of IC and then urologists will be diagnosing it more. And then there will be a larger number of patients diagnosed with IC 
like does that do you think that that would kind of make it something that in the future would allow for companies to have a larger incentive to create a drug well i think the the biggest thing that could happen uh-huh. is that there's more research into what causes it right which there is a very large uh study nationally that's sponsored by the nih uh called the map project and that's really trying to better understand the disease mm-hmm. to me the the biggest first step in any of this is understanding trying to understand what causes it and really find out if ic isn't one thing but is really a constellation of disease presentations that all might have different slightly different etiologies that's that's the place we need to start mm-hmm. and even though we've been doing it for i think over 30 years trying to better understand that's where there is a need for for more research and more funding for that type of research if we could figure out what caused it that would change everything everything yeah. i think with the biggest thing i would advocate for there to be teaching at medical school is empathy and understanding Mm -hmm. because the one thing we hear consistently from patients is their symptoms are immediately discounted and that the doctor doesn't or healthcare provider doesn't take the time to really understand their symptom presentation they hear something frequency urgency you must have overactive bladder i only have five minutes to talk to you here's a prescription for an overactive bladder medication that for patients who do have the pain component of this doesn't help Mm -hmm. because for many patients who have bladder pain syndrome their urgency and their frequency are directly proportionate to the pain. Right. So as their bladder fills, they experience pain and they want to go to the bathroom to relieve that. And that can be both frequent and urgent mm-hmm. depending on the patient. So if you're presenting in in America in the year 2019 with pain, you automatically, I think, have a different level of scrutiny because of the opioid uh, epidemic. Right. So patients immediately, I think, aren't heard they aren't listened to. Mm-hmm. So if there was one thing I would want medical schools to more so teach in the urological category of men and women presenting with these symptoms mm-hmm. is to take a pause and take and listen to them on what exactly their symptoms are mm-hmm. and then try to tailor a treatment program knowing there's no silver bullet here right now for this condition. There's no one medication that's going to fix them. Really listen to the symptoms that the patient has refer to a urologist ideally one that specializes in ic early in the process which will likely just if you hear these symptoms refer the patient to a urologist ideally one that specializes because they will be better able to tailor a treatment program which likely includes pelvic physical therapy um, may include some things that are more holistic or or um, dietary in nature not necessarily a just a pill and a prescription. Mm. Um, If we could teach that in medical school, I think that would go a long way, not only to helping patients alleviate their symptoms, but making them feel better having this invisible condition. And that's a huge part of it. When I've talked to women who say when they finally find a doctor that just acknowledges them, listens to them, like hears and understands them, they feel a little bit better. And obviously that that doesn't resolve the problem, but it's just the first step of of feeling like you're on the right track which is important as you I've as you just that said yeah many times Hannah yeah so if you had to give one piece of advice for IC patients what would it be um, my advice would be hang on to the hope mm-hmm. that I, I I believe that you are you do have this condition yeah 
and that the more you can help people understand it's a real condition, the more empathy you'll you'll get in the process. Number two, be patient to find a regimen that works for you. Mm-hmm. That because we don't know what causes this disease and because so many patients present slightly differently, that tells you right away one one regimen that works for one person may not work for you and try to be flexible and patient to to find what might be the right combination and it likely is a combination of things right. that's going to work for you um, but have hope that some somewhere along the way you're going to find something that at least manages your symptoms effectively if not completely cures you which is the hope we're all working toward thank you i agree and i also think that of course as as amazing as it would be to have a drug that was an answer to the ic um there are very effective things that patients can do. So as you said, pelvic floor physical therapy can help tremendously with IC. And um, I talk a lot on the podcast about the involvement of your gut health and finding a, like a functional nutritionist or doctor that like rules out any sort of gut issues because there's been a lot of studies that relate gut and bladder distress. and I mean, yeah, it's obviously it's very individualized and everyone has a different cause and different symptoms and different things make different people feel better. But as you said, just keeping hope and, and believing that there are things that you can do to relieve your symptoms and help with with what you're experiencing. So Absolutely. thank you. Thank you for being here. This is really interesting. I've never spoken to someone on the podcast who does what you do and who works in biotech and pharmaceuticals. So this was a great perspective to have and and really helpful information. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Hannah.